This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. I'm honored and excited to have as my guest in the studio today, Rachel Loudon, who is a food historian, historian of science turned food historian. Uh, most recently, Dr. Loudon is the author of Cuisine and Empire, Cooking in World History. Welcome to the studio. Delighted to be here, Chris. Um, today we're going to be talking about a recent hypothesis that's come up with relation to the agricultural revolution, which is a prehistoric topic. Um, we don't have any written records about it that suggests that the agricultural revolution might not have been um, the great leap forward that it was always believed to have been for for mankind. Um, so I'm going to start off by asking if you could just very briefly describe what the agricultural revolution was and what the traditional understanding of what that did for human development was. The uh, name, the agricultural revolution, was introduced in the early 20th century uh, by the renowned Marxist archaeologist and historian uh, Gordon Child um, to describe the transition of human beings from a stage in which they obtained their food by hunting and gathering to a stage in which they obtained most of their food uh, by farming. Uh, as he saw it, um, and this is indicated by the word revolution, it had two features. One was that it was a relatively quick and dramatic event, and the other was that it was a great leap forward in human history because following the shift to farming, mankind, humankind, quickly moved to cities, states, and the whole growth of what we tend to call civilization. Both of those positions have been challenged in recent years. Almost nobody now believes that the agricultural revolution was a rapid event. Um, it's usually assumed now to have taken thousands of years um, because it is such a difficult uh, shift to make. But perhaps more interesting for this podcast, um, the idea that it was a great step forward has also come under serious uh, attack. I first encountered this actually when we were in initial discussions about doing this podcast, and um, I found an entry on your blog, which is linked to on our website, that it's now been posited that this was actually something of a disaster. And I find that really remarkable. What is the critique or, or, or the hypothesis that's being put forward now? The critique um, also came from anthropologists who were looking at hunter-gatherer societies that are still around in the world today. And they decided that uh, these hunter-gatherers had a life comparatively speaking, of leisure. Unlike the poor modern uh, worker who has to go to the office or to work from nine to five, five days a week, stereotypically, hunter-gatherers, it seemed, only had to work for two or three days to collect all the food they needed. 
the anthropologist Marshall Salins, who was a leading figure from Chicago, called the uh, period before the agricultural revolution the original affluent society. Affluent because people could get everything they needed to live with relatively little work. Normally, I try not to offer my opinion during an episode, mm-hmm. but um, I'm finding this a bit of a stretch. <laughs> well, uh, there was detailed work. Some of the work, most important work, was carried out by Richard Bernays Lee in the Kalahari Desert among the Ikung San or the uh, Bushmen, as they're normally called in popular parlance. Mm-hmm. And he went down there for a number of months and he studied what they did and he found that they left camp in the morning on two or two and a half days a week and returned to camp in the evening with enough mongongo nuts to sustain them um, during the rest of the week. Okay, so that this, this is a hypothesis. Uh, is this generally accepted? What is, uh, as as a food historian, what is your take on that? Well, it is widely accepted. Um, many of your listeners may have read a book by another anthropologist, Jared Diamond, called Guns, Germs and Steel, which I think is widely used in high schools. And uh, Jared Diamond, um, prior to writing that book, uh, asked the question, was the agricultural revolution the worst disaster in the history of the human race? The worst disaster? The worst disaster in the history of the human race. And this came out in Discover magazine, which is widely read. It was a very easily readable essay. And this has become very much uh, the common opinion. Now, I think that you can only get away with this if you have a very funny notion of food and you have a very funny notion of work. For example, you mentioned the, I'm so sorry, I can't pronounce the name of the Kalahari uh, tribesfolk. Apparently, they're living entirely on these nuts. Almost entirely. There are a few other things. They will catch some small animals. Um, There are insects. There are some um, other fruits and plant materials. But the mongongo nut is the staple of their diet. Now, what I think is wrong with this analysis is that anthropologists were only paying attention to the collection of the mongongo nuts. Now, a mongongo nut is a very hard nut, and we can tell you some stories about how you can soften it in a moment if you like. But in order to eat a mongongo nut, you have to get the shell off. And the shell, if you think of a Brazil nut or a black walnut or a macadamia nut, it's a very, very hard shell. So you have to heat the mongongo nut in the fire to soften the shell, and then you have to crack the mongongo nut. Now, you might say, so cracking a few nuts? Who cares? But the meat inside the nut, the actual nut itself, is tiny. It's smaller than a marble, and it's uh, all twisted into the shell just like a pecan is. 
so that to get enough actual nut meat to fill your belly, you are going to have to be cracking an awful lot of mongongo nuts. And when I went back and looked at the work uh, that Lee did in the Kalahari, it turned out that it took eight hours a week just to crack the mongongo nuts. So you've got a whole extra day of work in there just cracking. And that's before you've prepared any of the other foodstuffs that they that's are That's before you've prepared any other foodstuffs. It's before you have collected the wood for the fire. It is before you have gone off and collected the water that you need to drink, uh, which is very time-consuming in the Kalahari. And traditionally, um, the largest container you had was an ostrich egg, which, although it's fairly big, you've got to carry a lot of water in ostrich eggs to uh, have enough for a whole camp. So when you do the calculations and you add in food processing um, and all the ancillary work to food processing, that is firewood, water, and so on, it turns out that these together run between 30 and 40 hours a week. So if you add that onto the gathering of the mongongo nuts, you have a total work week of six to seven, eight hour days and not the two and a half that the anthropologists praise when they talk about a life of leisure. One also has to presumably take into account that um, life expectancy was not particularly long and that the availability of food could not be guaranteed in a hunter-gatherer society. There was always uncertainty about where their food was coming from, and there was always a hungry season. Um, Mongongo nuts, for example, store fairly well, but towards the end of the year, um, you are running out of a ready supply of mongongo nuts. No, it wasn't a paradise. But for me, as a food historian, I think this is symptomatic of a huge gap that we have in history at the moment. There is a vast literature on and discussion of the history of agriculture, what hard work it is, how plowing and sowing and harvesting um, your crops is a very laborious and energy-intensive activity. But where do we have the discussions about what happens after harvest? Because we don't eat plants We don't eat harvests, we don't eat animals, we don't eat animal carcasses. We only eat those when they have been turned into something edible. And turning harvests and carcasses into something edible in the research I have done always, as in the case of uh, the mongongo nuts, takes longer than the collection or farming of food in the first place. So I think uh, we have to uh, begin to look seriously at the enormous labor that humans took on once, unlike animals, they began to eat uh, food that had been transformed from the natural state. So what what did happen with the preparation of food when you move from this hunter-gatherer 
phase into a, 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 an agricultural phase where you're actually controlling what's grown. Again, I think uh, we have to rethink the agricultural revolution. Nobody would farm unless they knew how to turn uh, what they farmed into food. Right. And what they farmed initially in most parts of the world was grains, the seeds of annual herbaceous plants. Now, grains are a very mixed blessing. They grow abundantly. They can be harvested every year. They are tiny and hard because they're the seeds for the next year, so they store very well, much better than mongongo nuts, for example. So those are all the benefits. And another benefit is that they are one of the most nutritionally complete kinds of foods because they are the food for new plants. The trouble is, because they are tiny and because they are hard as nails, literally, Turning them into food is enormously laborious. And uh, with the agricultural revolution, somebody had to take on the business of turning wheat or barley or corn or rye or oats into food. And that means grinding. And so far as I am able to ascertain both from experiments with grindstones, observing modern women grinding, and uh, the historical record, for a family of four, it would take a woman about five hours a day to grind the grains. Now think about the implications of that for history. If you are to have rulers who do not grind, somebody has to be grinding for them. If you are to have women raising families and they're spending five hours a day grinding and then they have to collect firewood and uh, water, um, they have no option of doing anything else with their lives, essentially, except grind. And that is a stunning historical fact that I think uh, we really need to come to terms with. Do we have any sense of what the division of labor might have been in the hunter-gatherer phase to compare it to? A roughly, you know, how much time did it take women to... Right, yeah. or, or do we know, for example, that we someone do, would... We people don't. People are just not asking these questions. And my mission, or one of my missions, is to persuade archaeologists and historians to look very seriously at the question of who is doing these transformations that make the raw materials of food into something we can actually put in our mouths and how long it takes them and how much energy it takes. Because I think a lot of uh, the origins of inequality lie here. I think a lot of differences between different societies lie here. I think even the origins of large organized labor lie here because a court, for example, a ruler has a court and if he has a court, he has to have a kitchen staff of uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of people, many of whom, a large proportion of whom are doing nothing but grind for the ruling class. And as well as growing, I know as late as the 18th, 19th century, it was estimated in the Ottoman Empire that for every person who lived in Constantinople, there had to be three people producing full-time to support one resident in the and city. 
Exactly. And they are not count- and there's going to be another uh three doing nothing but preparing the food at exactly, least. Exactly. Exactly. This is this is so fascinating and and we we could um we could, we could stay here all day talking about this but I'm keeping an eye on the clock and and our our general format but I I would definitely urge uh any listeners who are interested in this topic uh you have a wonderful blog at your website rachelloudon.com as well as your book Cuisine and Empire which I've been reading for the last week um which is absolutely fascinating read it's it's easy to dip into and, and out of and and it it brings a whole new dimension to to world history mm-hmm. um thank you so much for being with us today this has been another episode of 15 minute history and we'll see you next time for a transcript of this episode images and links to more information visit our website at 15minutehistory.org that's the numerals 15minutehistory.org you can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.